Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing pretty good. We had rain. We did. Celebrating it. Yes, we did have rain. Yeah, my AC was finally able to like go down to the temperature I was begging it to go to, so I'm in a good mood. (laughs) Yeah, it's been really tough for the AC to keep up with the heat that we've had. Um, But yeah, I did appreciate the rain, although, you know, then after the rain, it turns into just like a wet blanket outside. Like, it just feels like if you even step outside, you can like feel the moisture just immediately on your skin and in everywhere. It's just awful, but beggars can't be choosers I guess so (laughs) I know we're literally so thankful but like but actually yeah my hair no I'm with you um but yeah it is it is nice just oh my gosh it's just nice to inside your own home not to be miserable that was like where I couldn't take it anymore just let's get get with that um my daughter started volleyball yesterday your kids started school yes how did that go it's go. It's good. I think it's going great. Um, you know, I, I told you a little <laughs> bit about some of my struggle with this first week of school. Our school is doing something new this year, and so they have like all these orientation things, but they're all on separate days. So we have oh, like yeah, a general me. orientation on Monday that the parents had to go to, and it ended up just being like a reading of the school handbook, which was whatever. We all sat through it and now we all know all the rules. But now I have to go back again today and tomorrow. One for each of my kids' classrooms. Their teachers are doing their own separate like teacher orientation, but it's during school hours, during the middle of the day. And I have two kids in the school. So of course they would be on separate days. (laughs) So um, yeah, so it's been a little bit hectic this week, just trying to figure out the schedule, you know, between getting them to school and then having to go back to the school in the middle of the day and then bringing them home from school. So I feel like I just needed to take this whole week off of work, but you wouldn't let me. (laughs) (laughs) I like how that turned around on me uh, quite aggressively (laughs) and without my knowledge. Um, Well, I'm so sorry to hear that, but I'm glad that everybody's in school. We're getting into the hang of it. I said my daughter started – she had her first game last night. They won. Yeah. We've never been on a team that's won right out of the gate. Um, So hopefully everyone's ego will stay – you know, like we're in check and know that like, I don't know. I think there's a lot to be learned from losing games as well as winning games. So but I feel like it's cocky. great to win that first game. It kind of sets the scene and it sets is. the tone for the season. And it's really good just for that. It's just very exciting. It's really exciting. It is. It's, it is. It's like we're starting like where we ended last year. So just for all of them, I'm so excited. So it was fun fun to get back into it so and you won't give me time off for that so I guess we're even (laughs) we need to check the time off calendar and see what's happening over there (laughs) I know and thank you for those who have already given to our uh, campaign with season of justice again if you wanted to the website is givebutter.com slash fall moms f-a-l-l-m-o-m-s this will be in our show notes and if you decide to text mom soj to 53555 you can give that way as well uh we talked about it last week if you give 25 or more we're going to do a shout out for you in an upcoming episode every five dollars that you pledge is one enter entrance one entry. ticket one entry thing. <laughs> Why does that beginning have so many different endings? Um, For every entry, every $5 you pledge, you get one entry to win a 
Cosmo smartwatch, right? This is a lot. Melissa, you're nailing it. Yeah. From memory. That <laughs> was wild. Yes. The Cosmo Junior Track Smartwatch. It's one of our, from one of our sponsors, uh, one of yes. their products. And it's really, really cool. It's a, like a smartwatch for kids. And it kind of has their own, they can make phone calls with it, call you. And yeah. um, that's about it. But it's really, it's really awesome. Of course, it has like GPS tracking, but it's just like mm-hmm. a smartwatch that your kid can wear. Yeah. So thank you so much. We're going to be doing that until September 15th. So just be prepared to hear a little bit more about it. We're super excited to be working with them. All right. So this week, we're going to talk a little bit about mother-in-laws. Well, just one in particular. Yeah. (laughs) So if you have a mother-in-law, if you are a mother-in-law, pretty much if you live on this planet, then you know about the stereotype (laughs) that mother-in-laws can be universally hard to deal with people. Melissa, yours is not. Yours is a very lovely woman. The best lady in the world. Mine is as well. I I said that in a way that made it sound like... I was yeah, you're congratulating like, you for something yes. I don't have. But uh, yes, mine is wonderful too. A very, she's very helpful, always willing to do really anything that we need from, from her. But there is this stereotype that mother-in-laws can be overbearing and kind of obnoxious. And sometimes they just feel that nobody is really ever going to be good enough for their own perfect and precious adult child. Um, (laughs) You can actually find countless mother-in-law or monster-in-law stories on the internet, and you might even have a few stories of your own. But the mother-in-law story from today is sure to make your mother-in-law seem like a saint. So good mothers, we all want the same things for our kids. We want good health, a good moral compass, success, security, and love. We just want the best of everything for them. When our kids are young, it's kind of easier to control their environment and see to it personally that each and every need is met. And then when they become adults, we hope we've done a good enough job and can trust that they will continue to make these good decisions for themselves. That is, of course, in a perfect world. In reality, some parents have a really hard time letting go of the reins and they continue to try having a very heavy influence over their children's lives long after they've become adults. When Jelka Pezik first met Alexandra Ignatovic, she was smitten with her beauty and immediately thought of her son Joe, who was this very eligible bachelor. In an attempt at playing matchmaker, Jelka offered Alex a discount at the Pezik family auto shop after hearing that Alex needed to get the brakes in her car fixed. Jelka's son Joe actually worked at the family shop, so when Alex took her car in, the two of them met and Joe ended up asking Alex out for coffee. Within just a month of meeting, the two were engaged, but it became clear very early on that Jelka was going to be a problem-in-law. The Pezik family was from the former Yugoslavia, but were living in British Columbia in the 80s. Sam and Jelka Pezik opened Sam and Sons Automotive and ended up doing quite well for themselves. Sam was the president of the company while Jelka handled secretarial duties. In 1992, the business had a value of around 336,000 Canadian dollars, which would be worth about double that in today's money. The Pezik family really mostly kept to themselves. They lived in a $350,000 home, which is equal to about 700,000 today. And although the family was generally described as being kind, there was this close friend of Jelka, who you'll hear more about in this story. Her name is Helen. She said that Sam, Jelka's husband, physically abused her and that she was verbally abused by their sons. Helen said that Jelka was treated like a servant in the family. It was 1987 when Jelka met Alexandra and her mom, and they soon introduced her son Joe to Alexandra, who actually goes by Alex. 
So although Alex was born in Canada, her parents were also from the former Yugoslavia, just like the Peziks. So it really seemed like a match made in heaven. Alex's father died when she was 10, so she and her siblings were raised by their mom, Zinka Ignatovic, in a suburb of Vancouver called Burnaby. Alex was a very cheerful person who was very refined and polite. Her laugh was infectious, and she was someone who easily attracted friends. As we mentioned before, Alex was a really beautiful woman and a former pageant queen. In 1984, she competed in the Miss Canada competition as Miss Burnaby. She had a career as a dental hygienist in British Columbia when she first met Joe Pezik in 1988. So although Alex and Joe's relationship moved quickly to begin with, as I said, they were engaged within just a month of a meeting, they did take some time planning their wedding, and they ended up not getting married for almost a year. Throughout this time, Alex noticed some serious red flags with Joe's mom, Jelka. She had very strong opinions that she was very open about voicing, and she had this very controlling side about her that made Alex actually reconsider marrying Joe for a period of time, although she did end up going through with the wedding. Things did not improve once the couple were married, and just a few months in, everything started to really fall apart. Alex was concerned that her new mother-in-law had too heavy of a hand in her new marriage. Jelka really wanted control of everything about their new relationship, and she wanted to be consulted on pretty much every decision they made. She even tried to control what Alex was doing during the day and what she wore even. Both of Joe's parents were very outspoken about the fact that they didn't want Alex to work, and they didn't want her to have control of her own money. They forbid her from even having more than $10 in her purse at one time. So these are just like major red flags. Not even her (laughs) husband, her husband's parents. That's wild. Right. Alex's friend Tanya said that Joe and Alex had many arguments about his parents and their influence in their lives. It was alleged that Joe was also physically abusive towards Alex. He had hit her with a TV remote. He once twisted her arm and he had kicked down her door. At some point, Jelka and Sam offered to give Alex and Joe over $80,000 to buy a house in Burnaby with. Alex and Joe did accept the money, but almost immediately, as you can imagine, there were fights with Joe's parents over every little thing, like what they were going to do with the house, like things like what kind of backsplash they were going to pick, you know, for their own kitchen in their own house. They wanted to micromanage all of it. Oh, yeah. And you know that money just comes with, like, such (laughs) it's over your head forever rules Uh, yeah forever Mm -hmm. in 1989 Alex and Joe had a baby named Brett and you guessed it things got even worse with the in-laws Alex actually started to have a real fear that Jelka and Sam were trying to and wanting to gain full control over her son In one scary incident, when Brett was just an infant who was suffering from colic, Jelka suggested giving the baby this tea. Um, It must have been some kind of herbal tea, but Alex didn't want the baby to have this tea. So one day when Alex wasn't at home, Jelka gave tea to the baby anyway, and then when Alex returned home, her son Brett was unable to be woken up for 8 to 12 hours terrifying and enraging absolutely obviously alex was super upset over this and she took the baby and went to her mom's house alex told joe that at this point he needs to make a decision it's ultimatum time he has to choose between her and their son or his parents and joe actually chose his parents in february of 1990 he and alex officially separated 
Jelka and Sam did not take kindly to this separation and the resentment towards Alex grew. Jelka went around saying things like Alex was an unfit mother, she was an unfit wife, she was also an opportunist and a gold digger. She also said she wished Alex would die and she wished she had a voodoo doll that she could torture Alex with. Jelka even asked her friend Helen to get her a voodoo doll of Alex while Helen was on vacation. Much of the issues the Pezics had with Alex was that she was still living in that house that Sam and Jelka helped pay for. So they felt that Alex had no right to live in this house. But the truth was that Alex actually did move out of the house when the couple first separated. But then Joe moved out, so she decided to move back in. Upon her return, she found that Joe's parents had turned off the heat and the power to the house. Alex's friend Tanya later claimed that Joe's dad, Sam, told a friend he didn't care whether the baby, Brett, his grandson, lived or died and didn't care if the child starved to death. So when I was first reading about this, I was like, wow, they are horrific to her. Maybe they just are obsessed with this baby and they just want to have this baby, but they don't even care about the baby. So the harassment Alex faces from her former in-laws was really like living in a nightmare. Alex made numerous police reports beginning in 1989 due to the harassment and threats that Jelka and Sam were making to her on a regular basis. The province reported that Tanya said, quote, they would put stuff in her tank. They clipped her computer controls. They would follow her to the shopping center and block her off when she tried to leave the street, end quote. In another example, Alex once saw a man looking at her who then made a throat-slitting motion with his finger and pretended to shoot a finger gun at her. Local authorities said they were taking the threat seriously and even assigned a full-time investigator to look into the complaints. As more time passed, the ill will only continued to escalate while the couple started their divorce and custody proceedings. Alex did bring up her concerns with her in-laws during these proceedings and reiterated that the Pezics had been threatening her and intentionally trying to bring about emotional and financial harm in her life. So throughout the proceedings, the house that Jelka and Sam paid for was one of the major points of contention. They really wanted to have the rights to the house since it was paid for with the money that they had loaned the couple. So after listening to the case, the judge agreed with Alex's belief that her in-laws were actually taunting her. In September of 1989, Alex was given custody of her son, Brett, and Joe was only allowed to see him one night a week and three Sundays out of the month. Joe was also ordered to pay $650 a month in child support, and his parents were actually forbidden from seeing Brett due to the judge's belief that they wanted to harm Alex, which great call there. Furthermore, the judge advised Joe to go to therapy because as he put it, Joe was, quote, not yet a self-sufficient adult. <laughs> That's like the friendliest way of putting it. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, you're a man child. So in the end, Alex and Joe both got restraining orders against each other. On November 27, 1990, Jelka and Sam set fire to a tree in Alex's yard. Jelka's friend Helen was actually with them when they did this, and she gave a fake alibi for herself and for the Pezics when the police ended up getting involved later. Then, months later, in the spring of 1991, 
Jelka showed her friend Helen this book about a Canadian woman named Cindy James. Some of you, if you are familiar with a lot of true crime stories, you may have heard the story of Cindy James. Um, She was another, as I said, Canadian woman who was stalked and harassed for years before she was found dead under strange circumstances. Um, Cindy was actually found with her hands and legs tied together, but her manner of death has never been determined. Some believe she was murdered and others believe that she took her own life and caused her own harassment and attacks. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of a case that we covered really early in the podcast, the case of Rebecca Zahau, which they it was kind of a similar thing, the way that she was found. Some people believe that she had taken her own life, but then other people said there's no way she could have done this to herself. Right. There has to be somebody else involved. So that kind of reminds me of that a little bit. So Helen actually said that Jelka had read this book about Cindy James and she wanted to find someone who could do what she was saying the same thing to her daughter-in-law Alex. So she gave Helen a copy of the book about Cindy James and told her to take it home with her. At around the same time, Alex also received a copy of the same book in the mail, and when she opened it up, she realized that whoever had sent her this book actually highlighted all of the attacks and threats towards Cindy James. So Alex handed this book over to the police. As we said, she's terrified. She's being harassed. She knows, like, she pretty much knows who's doing it, but she's like, what can I do? You know, this is absolutely terrifying. So in March of 1991, Joe's parents started the foreclosure process on the home that Alex was living in with Brett. So they had to go and live with Alex's mom. In November of 1991, Alex and Joe's divorce was final, but the nightmare was still far from being over. Eight months after their divorce, on July 26, 1992, Alex was attacked by a man wearing a mask and wielding a knife. The man approached her as she was getting out of her car in front of her own home and chased her to her door. Alex managed to get herself safely inside and locked the door, but the experience really shook her up. She gave descriptions of two men that she actually recalled seeing in a car outside of her house, and one of her neighbors also reported hearing that same car speeding away. After this attack, Alex told a friend that an attack by a masked person was the last threat to happen to Cindy James from the book that she received and had all these things highlighted in it. Um, And this was the last thing that happened to Cindy James before she was found dead. And so Alex told her friend, we're down to the last chapter and now I'm dead. And that's just, it sounds like an, a re, it is a real life horror, you know, a real life horror event. Like it's just, it's insane to even think. It is, it's hard to even believe, but I just can't imagine what that would be like knowing you're doing everything you can. You're going to the police, you're asking for help and doing everything you can to protect yourself, but you know how this story goes. Like they literally gave you the blueprints. Yeah, yeah. She truly was scared. She was so scared that she also, you know, told her mom, she said, Mama, if something happens to me, take care of Brett. So, you know, she was genuinely concerned that something could happen to her and wanting to make sure that her son was okay and was going to be taken care of. So Alex told many friends and family that she was scared for her life. But throughout all of this, she maintained a really strong work ethic and she always still seemed to be in a really good mood. But those who were really close to her knew that these threats and this harassment really were getting to her deep down. Even though the police said that they were investigating and they were taking all the threats seriously, Alex's family didn't really see it that way. Alex was actually urged to go public with her experiences, but she refused. And one of her friends felt that Alex should have been given a police bodyguard for protection, but she wasn't. 
Her mom felt that this July 26th attack where the man was at her home with a knife wasn't properly investigated soon enough uh, because the police waited several days to even start looking into it. And by then, of course, it's really too late to actually collect any evidence and have it mean anything. The police seemed to know that Sam and Jelka were the ones responsible for everything that was happening to Alex. Uh, one police sergeant actually said that on several occasions, Joe, who of course is Alex's now ex-husband, would just show up to the police station and report an attack on Alex before she even did. And he would then say, now she's going to try and accuse me of this. So just so you know, you know, when she comes walking in here saying xyz happened and says it was me like i want you to know i told you heard it here first so it wasn't oh me oh my like, gosh <laughs> yeah just telling on yourself yeah but also if you have somebody that doesn't know about this case or you know that their family's been accused of stalking and this person comes in you think oh okay well i've got a there might be some credibility here wild absolutely wild uh, and we have so much more to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors my pets are my shadows wherever you find me you'll find them and that's because they aren't just animals but they're a part of my family and that's why i want to treat them to fresh dog food that's customized to perfection just for them Thanks to Nom Nom, my furry family has personalized portions that are perfectly tailored to meet my dog's specific and unique needs. Your animals deserve the best, and Nom Nom makes it so easy to do just that. With Nom Nom, you're getting real food, no mystery ingredients. And that's because Nom Nom is made with real, actual, whole foods that you can even recognize. Nom Nom is free from any harmful additives or fillers that contribute to issues like bloating or low energy. Nom Nom is already being used and loved by millions of good dogs just like yours and mine. And Nom Nom is all about quality, so much so that they offer you a money-back guarantee. If your dog doesn't absolutely love Nom Nom within 30 days, they'll gladly refund your first order, which is nice, but believe me, you aren't going to need it. My dog Remy is obsessed with Nom Nom. The other day I was actually opening my new shipment of Nom Nom and I made the mistake of saying the words Nom Nom out loud. And that's all it took for Remy to hightail it to his bowl to wait for me to feed him. Remy's current go-to is chicken cuisine, which has chicken, sweet potatoes, spinach, and squash. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash moms. Spelled trynom.com slash moms for 50% off. Trynom.com slash moms. I'm all about convenience. I want two-day shipping, and I want my groceries delivered to my house the same day I order them. I really want it all. And when it comes to searching for a doctor, I want those same conveniences. Unfortunately, the world of medicine has been super far behind. That is, until now. Thanks to ZocDoc, I can search for a provider and schedule my appointment all online. The average wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is actually 24 to 48 hours. And if that's not quick enough, sometimes you can even find same-day appointments. If you're unfamiliar with ZocDoc, that's okay. We'll explain. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments online. We're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat almost any condition you're searching for. There's something extra special about being able to schedule my appointment online without ever having to make a phone call. It's honestly an introvert's dream. And another plus is that the doctors on ZocDoc all have verified reviews. So you're hearing from real people who've actually seen these doctors, not some sort of robot reviewer. ZocDoc is absolutely my first stop in making doctor's appointments, and I've already used it twice this summer, and you should too. 
Go to ZocDoc.com slash mysteries and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash mysteries. ZocDoc.com slash mysteries. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Alex and her husband, Joe, how they're going through this tumultuous divorce and how her in-laws, Sam and Jelka, are making her life a living hell. On August 5th, just 10 days after the July 26th attack, Alex and her co-worker Bernice left the dental office where they worked at 6.15 p.m. So Alex was going to give Bernice a ride home, so they walked to her car, which was parked on the street on Cottonwood near a convenience store. Alex actually always chose to park on the street rather than in the underground parking garage because she felt that it was a safer place to park and she worried about getting attacked in the garage, which makes a lot of sense. You'd rather be out in the open. So as Alex was getting into her car with Bernice, a red Camaro drove by and someone fired shots from the passenger side of the car. As the shots were fired, Bernice was bending over to put her purse onto the floor of the car, which prevented her from getting hit. But Alex was not so lucky. She was shot and killed in this drive-by. When Bernice lifted her head, she could see the red Camaro fleeing, and she said she saw another vehicle, which was a mid-sized white two-door car, pull out of a nearby street and drive up Cottonwood right after the shooting. Bernice ran into Mac's convenience store and yelled that she needed an ambulance, and then she ran back to the dentist's office and was able to catch her boss as he was leaving the parking garage. Bernice was screaming that Alex had been shot. After the shooting, four 380 caliber shell casings were found inside of Alex's car. Police determined that it was a deliberate execution-style shooting. Several eyewitnesses to the shooting made it easy for investigators to find suspects pretty quickly. A man named Robert, who was in the vicinity of the murder, was able to follow the Camaro and jot down the license plate number. Robert watched the men park the car near McDonald's and then get into another car. He told police that he got a good look at these men and described the driver as being in his mid to late 20s or even his early 30s with a slender build, light olive-colored complexion, and a larger-than-average nose. The driver also had shoulder-length, dark curly hair, and wore a dark-colored jacket. The passenger was described as having an olive complexion, mid-20s, dark hair, and not very large in build. His hair was also about shoulder length, but didn't touch his collar. He had on a green t-shirt or a tank top. The Camaro was recovered by police and taken in for processing. When Alex's mom found out that she'd been shot and killed, she was absolutely devastated and, of course, immediately felt that the police hadn't done nearly enough to protect her daughter from the harm that she had been telling them about for months. Her mom said that Alex wanted to leave the area and get a fresh start with her son, but because the court had ordered Joe to have visitation with Brett, Alex wasn't able to leave. In a somewhat heartbreaking move, I say kind of somewhat, um, Joe actually gave custody of his son to Alex's mom, just like that. He signed over his rights and he didn't see Brett again for the next 16 years, which I say is heartbreaking, but heartbreaking for Brett, who has now been just abandoned, you know, by his father and his mom has been murdered and he's just, as a toddler, has no clue why any of this is happening. Um, So in that respect, it is heartbreaking, but... Like you put a note in here, you're like, is it heartbreaking? Kind of because yeah. you know he he's probably you know was what much would his life off. have been like? Yes, yeah. exactly. 
Other women in the area, especially Alex's friends, also expressed their frustration with the lack of police protection for female victims of violence. Her friends would later testify that Alex knew she was in danger, and she even said that she was going to die, particularly in those final days between July 26th and August 5th. They said Alex actually cried every night for two weeks, terrified about what was going to happen to her. The Burnaby police did admit that they could have done more to protect Alex, but they said that sometimes things fall through the cracks and they don't do their job as well as they should. Which is wild. I don't feel like we hear that a whole lot we from don't. police departments yeah. <laughs> saying that there was a mistake made. So, But it's good. actually, I mean, it's also true. And like, you know, we, we of course hold investigators to like a very high standard and we we expect that they're going to put 100% you know into their jobs and do every possible thing but you know it's true mistakes do happen they are humans still at the end of the exactly. day that are conducting these investigations and the world is it's not a perfect world right exactly sometimes things do not line up the way you know we wish they would or things don't get mm -hmm. done in the timely manner that we wish they would but obviously because of the history that alex did have with her ex-husband and his parents the pezics were immediately considered suspects and they started being looked into joe jelka and sam all had a solid alibi for the time of the shooting which to me isn't really that surprising and doesn't necessarily mean much we've heard tons of stories like this where someone has a good alibi but they still had something to do with it yeah the camera that the shots were fired from was inspected and fingerprints that were pulled from the back license plate ended up being matched to someone it was a petty criminal named lawrence delorme so his partial palm print was found on the gear shift knob and his physical description actually matched what the eyewitnesses said the driver of the Camaro looked like. They also found a hair on the seat of the Camaro and it was unable to be matched to anyone, but it was collected into evidence. It was learned that Lawrence was actually spotted by a police officer near the crime scene just about 16 hours before Alex was actually killed. An officer saw him walking on Cottonwood past the convenience store, and he, then he turned around and started walking back the other way. And, of course, the officer notices this because it's about 2 o'clock in the morning at this time. So if you're out walking around at 2 a.m. People a are going to notice. Right. And a police officer sees you, they're definitely going to pay attention to what you're doing and where you're going. Soon enough, the Camaro was confirmed to be a stolen vehicle that had been taken from an underground parking lot on July 23rd. The car had been seen in Alex's neighborhood multiple times in the two or three weeks before the murder, with one neighbor claiming she saw the Camaro driving up and down the lane behind Alex's house. The neighbor said the car had two men inside of it who both had dark hair. They would slow down when they passed by Alex's house, which they did what this neighbor said was lots of times in the days leading up to the shooting. It was also revealed that a Camaro had been seen near Alex's job two to three times in the weeks leading up to the shooting, and the car was also seen by several people on Cottonwood on August 5th. The next big lead in the case came from an unexpected source. This is wild to me. So as it turned out, Alex had actually hired a private investigator to look into the attacks the day before she was shot. She asked the PI, who was named Ozzy Caban, to monitor Joe as he picked Brett up from daycare the next day, which ended up being the same day she was killed. So on August 5th at 4.30 p.m., two private detectives who worked for Ozzy were watching the daycare center that Brett attended. The center was just a few blocks from Alex's work. While watching the daycare, Ozzy's detectives saw a white male sitting in a white 70s or 80s model Chevrolet. One detective wrote down the license plate number and gave it to the police. 
The license plate corresponded to a white Pontiac that had a maroon roof that was owned by a man named Milan Nanatic. The police had actually interacted with Milan back on July 31st. So that day, two police officers watched as Alex, while she was in her car, followed a white Pontiac, which was driven by Milan, as it drove down the street. She then made a U-turn in the middle of the block. At the same time, the white car she was following pulled over. The police approached Alex's car and asked if she was lost. She said no. She thought that this white car belonged to the men who had attacked her on July 26th. She'd been writing down the license plate number, so she handed it over to the police, who then went to speak to the driver of the white car, Milan. It's unclear what he said, but pretty sure that he said, I wasn't involved in any attack of any woman. So Milan was also put under surveillance. Police were still watching Milan on August 8th, and they saw him driving his father to the Pezik's auto repair business, where they stayed for about half an hour. Based on this and everything else the police knew at this point, they theorized that Jelka, possibly with the help of her husband Sam and her son Joe, had paid Milan to hire someone to kill Alex. So they believed that Milan hired Lawrence and that he was the driver of the Camaro, but they didn't know who the other man in the vehicle was, which would actually have been the shooter. Furthermore, they thought Milan likely drove the white car that met up with Lawrence and the other man after they abandoned the Camaro at McDonald's. So the police were still watching Milan on August the 10th when they saw him driving his white Pontiac to Sam and Son's auto shop. Hours later, they witnessed Milan and Jelka standing outside a KFC together and talking for about 10 minutes before getting back into Jelka's car and returning to the auto shop. Later that same afternoon, Milan and Jelka were then seen arriving at the Metrotown Mall, but they showed up in separate cars and they went into a lottery booth that was in one of the stores at the mall and then went back to Jelka's car. Milan then hid in the back of the car while they drove around for a bit, and then Milan went back to his own car. While he was driving away, he was arrested. The officers handcuffed him, and as they were searching him, a package fell from around his waist and onto the ground, and Milan immediately said, that's not drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) it was not drugs. He said, that's money. I don't do drugs, (laughs) which I just think is so... I don't know why that was so funny to me because, of course, the police are going to figure out what it is anyway. You know, they're going to inspect it. Well, then also, if you're saying it's not drugs, now the police are going to think, why do you have $30,000 if it's not drugs? Exactly. Hmm. What is going on here? Um, Yeah. So inside the package was about $30,000. And after Milan was apprehended, a search warrant was then carried out on his house. Investigators found a gun that was later determined to be the gun that Alex was actually shot with. They also found a box of ammo in the house, as well as a note under the bed that had Milan's fingerprints on it. So this note read, quote, The job was done, but the foreman was arrested for questioning. Don't worry, he didn't say anything. Now he's leaving the country, and the price is $30,000 more. There's people following him now, so try to get the money together as soon as possible. The best way is the key to the upstairs, end quote. So this note became known in this case as the foreman note. And it will be brought up again later. So Milan's vehicle was also seized by the police after he was arrested. In mid-November, Milan paid $130,000 in bail to be released, but he was ordered to stay home between the hours of 8 p.m. to 6 a.m., and he had to report to the RCMP every week. Lawrence and Jelka were also arrested on August 10th. When Jelka was arrested, authorities found a copy of the Cindy James book that we mentioned earlier on a bookstand in the living room. 
She tried to get out on jail pending trial, but she was denied bail after her friend Helen came to her senses and told the court about all the disturbing things that Jelka had said about Alex in the past, which took you a while, but glad you're here with us, Helen. So Helen spilled the beans about everything and talked about how Jelka said things like, quote, do you know somebody who would bump her off and made statements about paying someone to scare or harass Alex? Helen said Jelka once persuaded her to making threatening or frightening calls to Alex's mother. According to Helen, Jelka and Sam were visited by Milan on the evening of August 2nd. Jelka took Milan into her bedroom where they had a whispered conversation before Milan left. Later, Jelka complained about Alex some more, but Helen told her she didn't really know what to say and Jelka responded, oh, it'll be over soon. Four days after Alex was shot, Jelka talked to Helen about Alex's murder and said there were three men involved and they used a semi-automatic gun. She also claimed that Alex had been killed because of drugs. The charges against those who were arrested, which would be Milan, Lawrence, and Jelka, ranged from first-degree murder to conspiracy to commit murder. Later, Sam and Joe Pezik were also arrested, but they were released with no charges ever being filed against them. Investigators, though, continued to look for this shooter. In September, a woman named Faye went to police with information regarding Lawrence. So Faye's ex-boyfriend was this man named David, and he was friends with Lawrence. So when she learned that Lawrence had been arrested for Alex's murder, she called David and was like, hey, are, are you involved in this? David said, hey, can't talk to you on the phone about it, but we can meet up and talk in person, and he thought his phone was bugged. So the next day, David goes to see Faye at her house, but he actually wouldn't talk about Alex's murder out loud. Instead, he would write notes back and forth to Faye for her to read. He was paranoid that Faye's house was even bugged at this point. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So David burned all the notes he wrote after they were finished and flushed any remnants down the toilet. But Faye managed to sneakily save part of the note that mentioned the gun. And the partial note said they said it was a 38, but it was a 9mm. So Faye had to really rely on her memory for the rest of the notes because they were destroyed. But she said she recalled one of the notes saying, quote, We went to where she works. We waited four hours. I told the driver to drive. I shot her in the throat and the head. I felt nothing. It was an easy third edit. It was an easy $30,000. Yikes. So another note said there's $300,000 out there and each person was going to get thirty dollars to $60,000. According to Faye, this money was all coming from Sam Pezik. And we still have more to get into after one last break to hear word from this week's sponsors. Summer is the absolute pits when it comes to wearing an uncomfortable bra. You know the one. We all have one in our drawer that we bring out only to immediately regret it. The bra with underwire and bulky fabrics that basically start a fire under your top. But Honey Love bras are made differently. There's no underwire, yet somehow it still gives you a lift. And the fabric is so soft it feels less like a bra and more like second skin. The ultimate bra is the bra you feel like you aren't even wearing, which makes Honey Love the ultimate bra. Ooh, you must mean the crossover bra. It gives all the support of a traditional bra with zero underwires. Plus, they keep it cute by adding mesh detailing. It's so comfortable, you won't want to take it off. And that's actually a thing for me. I'm someone that wears bras 24-7. So the relaxed lounge bra called the V-Bra is perfect for me. It offers the same support as a traditional bra with no underwire, and it's designed to help lift and separate. No more uniboob effect. 
And if you hate that feeling of bra bulge in the back of your bra, which I absolutely do, Honey Love's bras are designed with back smoothing fabric to prevent it from the jump. And you've heard us talk about Honey Love's shapewear before. Not only do they have amazing bras and comfortable shapewear, they also have tanks and leggings that help with everyday support. Treat yourself to the best shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash moms20. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off. Honeylove.com slash moms20. Cinched, snatched, and lifted. It's hot girl season, thanks to Honey Love. In Florida, we don't take hot girl walks. We take how did it get this hot and why did I leave my house walks. And when I get back from my H-D-I-G-T-H-A-W-D-I-L-M-Y walks, I am craving some hydration. Thankfully, I have Liquid IV to help me out. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America, and now it's available in sugar-free. Liquid IV left no stone unturned. Not only does it have three times as many electrolytes as the leading sports drinks, it also has eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. On top of that, Liquid IV hydrates you two times faster than just drinking water alone. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. I love convenience, and Liquid IV agrees. Nothing says easy like taking one of my white peach packs, which is my favorite flavor, throwing it in my purse, and adding it to my water later in the day. Whether you're taking a Florida hot girl walk or you're stuck on back-to-back Zoom meetings, being able to hydrate is key, and Liquid IV makes it easy peasy. Liquid IV contains no artificial sweeteners and zero sugar, but it uses proprietary amino acid allulose blend, say that three times fast, giving you a sweet taste without calories or raising your blood glucose levels like you get from sugar. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Now sugar-free. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco or get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code MOMS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you use promo code MOMS at liquidiv.com. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here. A brand new dermatologist approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. And now, back to the episode. So, before the break, we have covered a lot about the murder of Alexandra Pezik. Her mother-in-law, Jelka, has been arrested in connection with her murder along with two other men. And now there is this third man named David who is possibly also involved. His ex-girlfriend came forward to the police after she heard about Alex's case on the news. And she said, hey, I know I've heard of this guy Lawrence before. So the connection there was because her ex-boyfriend actually knew Lawrence. So she actually kind of trapped David into this conversation. And they were passing notes back and forth. David was very paranoid during the conversation, but in the end did admit that he had 
a part in Alex's murder. So Faye went straight to the police with everything that she found out from David. And she also gave them a partial piece of a note that she had saved. Officers came over on September the 8th and they ended up setting up listening devices inside of Faye's house. Remember, David was worried that her house was already bugged before and it wasn't. Now it but is. Now it is. <laughs> um, so then they had Faye invite him back over again. This time, a two-hour recording of their interaction was made, and it was later played for the jury. But I am assuming there wasn't really a lot going on because David still didn't want to talk out loud. So once again, they communicated through notes. So I don't know what the jury listened to. I guess them scratching on pieces of paper. I have no idea. Yeah. I wonder uh, if she ever read anything out loud. That's what I was like, thinking. Yeah, or mm -hmm. maybe just like made some kind of, tried to give some kind of a clue about what she was reading. Yeah. The notes from this interaction, though, weren't reported on, uh, but Faye later did testify that during this particular visit, David told her that Lawrence was the driver of the car and that Milan had the murder weapon. The hair that was found on the seat of the Camaro that we mentioned earlier came back as a match to David, and his fingerprint was also found on the right side of the rearview mirror in Milan's car. So with this new information, of course, now they have DNA, David was arrested on September 10th, 1992. At the time of his arrest, he was wearing a hip pouch that had an address book with Lawrence DeLorme's phone number in it. David was then charged with first-degree murder in Alex's case. In February of 1993, a Supreme Court judge decided that David would be tried separately from Milan, Lawrence, and Jelka on the basis that statements made about David's behavior might be used unfairly against the other three defendants. Milan, Lawrence, and Jelka went to trial together in November of 1993. The prosecution theorized that Jelka paid Milan $30,000 to arrange the murder of her former daughter-in-law, Alex. And then Milan hired Lawrence to drive the car, and he hired David to be the shooter. Defense attorneys for Lawrence and Milan were really nervous because there were a ton of eyewitnesses in this case, and they were going to be testifying for the prosecution. And these people could confirm seeing these men at or near the scene of the crime on that day. So their defense attorneys actually asked the judge to issue a warning to the jury and just kind of remind them about the credibility of eyewitnesses and how memory is often unreliable and has led to wrongful convictions. This is very true that we've talked about this before, about how people yeah. just don't always accurately remember things, even if they just happened. And particularly when it's like a very high stakes situation and your adrenaline is high, like your ability to actually recall accurate information is like quite a bit diminished but i also hate this because i feel like it's almost like pre-gaslighting like you probably don't remember what you think you remember because then i'm like well the human brain like you do have memories you know what i mean and i right. feel like you can't discount them entirely like when people are saying like yeah you might not be able to say like super specific things but i feel like it can be trusted like if, if like a group of people most of them say a similar thing or say he had dark curly hair down to his shoulders like if that's something that multiple people say it's probably an accurate statement. Yeah. Wouldn't you well, agree? Also, if, if you want the judge to say this to the jury, then really you have to do that about all the evidence because there are inaccuracies in certain things. So wouldn't you – like if you're going to do it for one, you have to do it for everything. Right. You can't just do it yeah. for this one thing. Yeah, for sure. 
So Milan's lawyer said that all the things that uh, actually implicated Milan could be explained away. For example, he suggested that if Milan's car was close to the murder scene at 4.30 p.m. on August the 5th, then it must have been somebody else driving it because Milan had allegedly dropped his car off at Sam and Sons earlier that morning. So they were saying it could have been anyone driving it, I guess, could have been any one of the people they've already suspected because it seems like everyone in this town like knows each other and goes to this auto shop. Yeah. So 12 people took the stand and testified to seeing the red Camaro and its two passengers during the course of the day that Alex was killed, and many were able to give very detailed descriptions of them. Lawrence did fit the description witnesses gave of the driver of the car, and one positively identified him as being the driver. The two PIs we mentioned earlier said that they saw Milan near Alex's work on the afternoon she was shot, and they also testified and positively identified Milan as being the driver of the white getaway car they saw. Lawrence took the stand and testified in his own defense, stating that he stole the Camaro because his, get ready for this, wife's cousin's boyfriend (laughs) needed some tires. (laughs) That's a big favor to do for your wife's cousin's boyfriend. Honestly, I can't even figure – in my life, I can't figure out, like, switch it to husband's cousin. I don't even know who that person is. I have no idea. Um, So he parked the car on North Road, and then then a few days later, he changed the license plate and moved the car to a spot behind the mall while he waited for his wife's cousin's boyfriend to cough up the money for the stolen tires. Yikes. So he said (laughs) – that about a week before the day of the murder, David, who he knew through a friend, came by and asked him to steal a quote-unquote beater car for him. Lawrence said that he showed him the Camaro, but David was not interested. Lawrence said he was on Cottonwood early on August 5th because he wasn't able to sleep, so he decided to walk to Mac's convenience store, which is when this officer saw him. He said he was just on the way to a local park to see if his friends might be there at 5 <laughs> o'clock in the morning. What kind of friends are these? what are you doing? (laughs) So according to a story, Lawrence told David to take the Camaro that was still parked behind the mall because David said he needed a car. After that, Lawrence said he was at home in bed for most of the rest of the day. Several family members testified to him being at home at the time of the murder. During his testimony, Lawrence did not attempt to explain why a red Camaro was seen behind Alex's house several times in the weeks leading up to the murder. Milan also testified in his own defense and said that he was duped into playing a major role into Alex's murder. Duped, he says. So this is kind of wild, what Milan says happened. He says the Pesics were actually very good friends with his own parents, and Sam Pesic pulled a fast one on him. Milan says that he took his car to be repaired at the Pezik's auto shop on July 28th or the 29th, but at the time, they were just very busy, and Milan was told that they wouldn't be able to get to this repair until August the 5th. While Milan was at the shop inquiring about his car, Sam Pezik pulled him aside and asked him if he could borrow Milan's father's gun, and Sam claimed that they had this problem, there was an intruder that had been hanging around their yard, and he wanted the gun just to scare off whoever it was. At first, Milan said no, but when Sam offered to repair his car for free, Milan ended up agreeing to it. Milan testified that he knew his dad would not approve of him loaning out a gun, but he gave the gun to Sam anyway and told him that he would just have to give it back in a few days. So according to Milan, he drove his car to Sam and Sons at around 10.30 on August 5th so that he could drop it off for this repair, and 
on that day, Sam tells him, hey, actually, I need to keep the car for the rest of the day, but it'll be done as soon as possible and I'll give you a call. So Milan left his car there and he ended up getting a ride home on public transit. Then later that afternoon, his friend came over and picked him up and took him to the SkyTrain station to be dropped off so that he could go back to the auto shop to pick up his car. It was around 6 o'clock that evening when Milan got back to Sam and Son's auto shop and he found out his car still wasn't ready. And Sam then told him that actually another part was needed and he had to order it. So now it was actually going to be a few days and, you know, so sorry. So Milan takes his car home because... The thing he was having repaired, it was just like a turn signal problem. So not something that affects his car's drivability. He's like, whatever, I'll just bring it back in a few days. Then later that night, Milan goes to watch some fireworks with his friends. Milan said he learned about Alex's murder for the first time the very next day when he read about it in the paper. And immediately when he found out, he was worried that the gun he loaned, uh, his father's gun, had actually been used in this shooting, which, whew, oh my gosh, this is the craziest story to me, like that yeah. this whole thing is crazy. You're going to have to take it for what you will. But this would be the craziest thing I've ever heard. Like if any of this, like were I know, <laughs> like actually the truth, like truth behind what happened. He testified that his father happened to actually tell him a couple days later on August 8th that he was going, he himself was going to Sam and Sons to have his rearview mirror repaired. Is so- there no other auto place in all of Canada? I'm thinking no. Not in this area anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Milan said, you know, I'm going to tag along to the auto shop. And um, he's thinking he's going to try and speak to Sam about getting back the gun. Probably also about like, hey, you didn't use it, right? So when he speaks to Sam, he is then told that the gun was in fact used in the murder. So Sam is like, yeah, actually, sorry about that. This is the this is a murder weapon now. Um, and he tells him, you know, now we're involved and money is already passed hands. There's more money that's going to pass hands in a few days. And Milan says that Sam tells him, you know, come back in a few days and he's going to have something for him to do. So Milan says he refused at first. But then Sam was just like, hey, please help me out. I'm like up to my neck in this and I can't take no for an answer. So I guess Milan was like, okay, I guess I'm roped into this whole scheme now. Um, Sam eventually did return the gun, but that's crazy. That's like the craziest story I've ever heard, like that you take your car in to get repaired by your family, friend, and only repair shop in town, and now you're involved in a murder? Murder for hire (laughs) plot. Yeah, but like... Milan, there nothing is being done in this shop. Why do you think you're going to come back and they're going to give you a job? <laughs> right. um, I mean, they do need to hire more people. Nothing is being fixed at this place. <laughs> <laughs> so on August 9th, Milan woke up early and found a note that had been passed through the mailbox addressed to Sam Pezik. This is that foreman note that we talked about before. And just a reminder, this nonsensical note says, quote, the job was done, but the foreman was arrested for questioning. Don't worry. He didn't say anything. Now he's leaving the country and the price is $30,000 more. There's people following him now, so try to get the money together as soon as possible. The best way is the key to the upstairs, end quote. So when Milan sees this note, he thought it probably involved Sam somehow, seeing as it was addressed to him. To yeah. Sam. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he hides the note under his mattress and goes back to the auto shop to see Sam again the following day. This time, Milan tells Sam, I don't want any part of this. He's finally standing up for himself. But Sam tells him, 
not an option and you're going to be the one carrying the money now so milan i guess said okay and he goes to kfc to meet up with jelka and ask her for help but she was like can't do anything sorry so sam tells milan that the package would be under the driver's seat of his car when he came to pick it up from the shop he was to take this package of money home and to wait for further instructions At some point, Milan overheard Jelka say she was going to buy lottery tickets. So instead of going straight home, Milan decides to try and track Jelka down to beg for help once more. He said he figured she'd be getting the lotto tickets for Metro Town, so he just goes up there and he ends up finding her and he gets in the car to talk with her. What luck. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But again, from this story, from the things that these people are saying, it's like a one block radius. There's just nothing. All these people live in the same spot. So Jelka drives her car home to feed the dog while Milan was in the car hiding in the back seat. So not only does he (laughs) say he found her, but he gets in her car um, and is in the back seat. And so he says that this was the time that that PI sees him ducking down in Jelka's cars because he was actually breaking into her car. (laughs) (laughs) So Jelka was the only one of the three who did not take the stand in the trial. During the closing arguments, the prosecution instructed the jury to only look at the facts presented and not consider the fact that there could be more people involved who weren't on trial. Specifically, they're talking about Joe and Sam Pezik, who had not been charged in the case, but were suspected by many to be involved in the murder. Milan's lawyer argued that Milan was just a pawn in all the other people's scheme. Jelka's lawyer argued that if the other Peziks were involved, she didn't have a clue about it. Lawrence's lawyer felt the jury should be persuaded to find him not guilty based on the conflicting eyewitness statements in the case. On December the 10th, after deliberating for eight hours, the jury found Jelka, Milan, and Lawrence all guilty of first-degree murder in the case of Alexandra Pezik. They were all sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. At the sentencing, the judge said, quote, each of you were party to a cold, calculated, heartless, execution-style murder of a young mother on the streets of our community. Alex's mom told the media, I can't say I'm happy, but I'm satisfied justice is done. Thanks to God and all my friends who all those days were there for me. All three of the defendants appealed their convictions in 1997, and all three were denied. David was the last person to stand trial, and it began in May of 1994. As we said before, they tried him separately, but the theory they presented was basically the same as the one presented in the previous trial. It was that Jelka hired Milan to arrange the murder of her daughter-in-law, and Milan hired Lawrence and David to help carry out the actual shooting. Faye, who was David's ex-girlfriend and the one who helped the police take him down, served as a star witness in David's trial. Another one of the witnesses was a corrections officer named Paul, who had searched David's cell while he was in jail and found several notes, including one that said, quote, I stole the Camaro and was approached by a guy named Lawrence and Mike offered me $1,000 for the car, end quote. And Mike, for the record, is apparently a nickname or a name that Milan uh, goes by. David's defense relied on his own testimony and the lack of eyewitness credibility. They argued that the two of the witnesses who identified him at the scene couldn't be relied on because they actually failed to pick David out of a photo lineup. In fact, they even picked out different men in the lineup. The defense also said that out of 30 witnesses to the shooting, nobody had identified David as being the man in the passenger seat, basically as him being the shooter. They further argued that there was no hard evidence against David at all and the entire case was circumstantial. 
So David gets on the stand and he admits to the fact that he is a criminal, but not the murdering kind. He said he was more of a thief and a drug dealer. And so he stole the Camaro and sold it to Milan and Lawrence, but he had nothing to do with Alex's shooting. He testified, quote, I've done a lot of bad things, but I didn't shoot Ms. Pezik, end quote. This week, Anna researched this episode. She works with Haley and she's wonderful. And she put a little note in here that said David's defense about only stealing the car was the exact same defense Lauren gave. The jury doesn't know this, of course, but from an outside viewer, this double defense makes it really obvious that one or both of them are lying. They both say the exact same thing happened and you can't tell who's lying or who's not or if they're both lying. So David claimed that he was at the SkyTrain station when two men, Milan and Lawrence, asked him if he knew where they could get a hot car. So David goes in Milan's car with him and Lawrence and they drive to where the Camaro was parked and they sold it to David for $1,000. So we're just saying that these just random two men came up to you and were <laughs> like, do you have a stolen car? And he's like, Good news. Just like, actually, one. I do. Right. I actually yeah. do. <laughs> Thanks for asking. I was hoping someone would ask me today. So David said that his fingerprints were on the rearview mirror because when he was in the Camaro, he adjusted the mirror to see behind him. He was just being a responsible driver. So David said he didn't even know Lawrence. But prosecutors claimed that not only did they know each other, they knew each other since they were little kids and they were best friends. David, though, denied this allegation. On the day of the murder, David said he was at the mall with his girlfriend. They went to see his mom at about 7 p.m., but he wasn't positive about what else he did or who else he saw that day. David also denied confessing to Faye. So on May 30th, 1994, the jury deliberated for an hour and a half before finding David guilty. He was sentenced to 25 years to life, which is the same as the other three. In his sentencing, the judge told David, your lies fooled no one. You've taken the life of a beautiful woman and a young mother. It's obviously not the easiest $30,000 you've ever made, end quote, which is referring to that note before where he said it was an easy $30,000. So Alex's mom told the media, I'm satisfied with the decision. It's finished. I just have to turn the page of another chapter in my life and continue to live with my grandson without his mother. She also actually thanked each juror as they left the court, which I thought was really kind. Yeah. And Canadian. In 1998, Alex's mom filed a wrongful death suit against Jalka on behalf of Alex's son, Brett. They were awarded $350,000, part of which unfortunately went to paying lawyers' fees. But when Brett turned 18, he was given $183,000. In 2007, Jelka applied for early parole after serving 15 out of her 25-year sentence, and in 2008, a trial was held to determine whether or not this request would be granted. The prosecutor argued that Jelka still complained about Alex to that very day, and a parole officer also confirmed this. He said that Jelka still talked about Alex's wrongdoings, which, that is disturbing. Yeah. Like, Fifteen after fifteen years behind bars, there's people who are in con- who are closely in touch with you are saying that like no, you still have like some kind of weird hatred for a person who's been dead for fifteen years. Like, what's going on here? Like to me, that's wild. That like there was like her parole officer was even saying like no, she still has issue like problems. That's w- yeah, for sure. Like of all people, that's who you want to think I'm over this whole thing, right? 
Sam Pezik testified that he and his wife were not responsible for his son Joe and daughter-in-law Alex's divorce, but they said that it was Alex who was the problem. He said it was Alex who called Jelka bad names and accused Sam of chasing her with a screwdriver. Sam said the way Alex made it seem like it was like, you know, they just terrorized her and he said that they did no such thing, that they absolutely did not do anything like that. Jelka said that she was sorry for everything that had happened and said that she also felt the pain as a mom. She said she was very sorry that Alex died so young. That might be the sentence that actually pushed me over the edge in this story. That's yeah. absolutely wrong. Yeah. Prosecutors said that, you know, the only reason Jelka felt sorry was because she got caught. But there was no mistaking that she still carried this intense hate for Alex. Jelka, of course, denied this and said that she did feel very sorry for Brett having to grow up without his mom and his dad. Remember, we said dad gave up the rights to Alex's mom and he never saw his son again by his own choice. So Brett, who was 19 at this time, by the time that they're doing this hearing, testified about his life after losing his mom. He said, you know, every family gathering is hard. Every holiday is hard because he's doing all of that without his mom. And there's not a day that goes by that he doesn't think about what happened to her. This was the first time this day in court was the first time that Brett saw his dad face to face since his mom was killed. He was three years old at the time and Brett later said, you know, it was really hard to see his dad and his biological grandmother in court, you know, face to face. In the end, Jelka's request for early parole was denied, but she could apply again in 2018. So we couldn't find any reports about Jelka past the year 2008. So we're not really clear where she is now. That kind of goes for everybody else who was in the story. Canada doesn't have the same type of inmate search system as we do here in the U.S. So it's kind of hard to find out, you know, unless they appear in an article somewhere. We can't really tell whether or not they were released or if they're still incarcerated. In 2009, a jury decided that Milan could apply for early parole after serving 16 years. His lawyer, you know, said that he'd been very well behaved in prison and that he deserved parole. Fun fact, he also got married while in prison and had two sons, which is wild because I guess I just forgot that conjugal visits were a thing because at first I was like, huh? I was like, how did he get married and start a family while he was behind bars? But then I was like, oh, yeah, (laughs) I forgot that that's like a thing. Do they do that on Love After Lockup? Okay, Love After Lockup, they don't do that typically, but one couple... She did get pregnant. I think they gave money to the guard or something. It was something wild oh, and she wow. got pregnant while. But they couldn't even say it until he was off parole. They would just of say course. like she has a different dad. And wow, then they were like, yeah. oh, actually, I got pregnant in the jail. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So Milan testified in his early parole hearing. And this time he actually fully admitted that he did play a part in the murder by hiring David and Lawrence to carry it out. There, again, were no updates reported on this, so we don't know if his parole application was successful or not, just like, you know, the rest of them. But all of them should have been eligible for parole, for their parole in 2018. So it is very possible that none of them are still behind bars. Ooh, wow. This story is wild from beginning to end. There, I don't know, it just seems like once once Alex and Joe were divorced, like, especially if Joe doesn't even want to have anything to do with his son, which I don't understand, why couldn't they just have cut ties? Why did they, why, none of this had to happen. I know. That's the part that I don't really understand. I guess it's kind of like an obsession, I feel like, developed between, like, one thing set off this terrible relationship between 
you know, mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. And I don't understand how it spiraled that quickly out of control to the point that it did because like they weren't even together that long before they got engaged. And then it was like all this stuff started happening right away. So I, that part is like the craziest thing to me that it ended, that it even got to this point, you know, that nobody put a stop to this and we're like, hey, I barely even know you people. Like we don't have to continue having each other in our lives. Like if this is how unhappy everybody is. I don't I just I don't get it I mean like you like we say though it's a probably a good thing that we don't understand why these no, things yeah. like why people do but no we things, have but. heard of it like where people want custody and they want their kid to only have custody of the kid and that happens but for him to have just signed over his rights that's where I really just it, it right for what point what reason it doesn't make any sense yeah well that was the story for this week Melissa are we going to turn the page let's turn the page why do I ask let's you if we're going to I already know we're going to I don't know <laughs> I don't know but I appreciate that you give me power in that every yeah. single week <laughs> okay so Mandy I decided to look into some fun facts about Canada we haven't done a story in oh, Canada in forever yeah, yeah. I suggested something else to you and then quickly realized I wasn't going to be able to do it so here's what we've got So I'm just going to ask you some questions. They're kind of fill in the blanks, but they're kind of fun. And we're going to end on a real banger, I got to be honest. So uh, Mandy, there's a famous bear in cartoon movies. And this bear actually comes from Canada. Do you know what movie, what children's movie I would be talking about? A cartoon bear. Is it a cartoon or like a a movie? It's a car. It was a movie. And I think there's probably been, yeah, there's shows too with this character. Jungle Book? Nope. Try one more. Another famous Winnie bear. The Pooh. There you go. Why Winnie would the I Pooh? say the Jungle Book and not Winnie the Pooh first? L- literally the one starring the bear. I, know. I don't know. <laughs> like, wait, there's so, a bear in in yeah, Jungle Book. He's such anyway. a side character. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so in 1915, the London Zoo imported a bear cub for, into Ontario, and I guess it was the favorite part of the zoo for a young kid named Christopher Robin. And the love of this bear actually inspired his dad to go on and write these stories of Winnie the Pooh. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's so sweet. I know. I'm going to have to write a book about cacao trees based on my son's love of cacao. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it'll be as famous. Um, Mandy, what was the name of what people called really fanatical fans of the band The Beatles? What, What were they called? Do you know? Or what, what the time was called. The impact of the band, the Beatles. I, I fudged that one. Let me just say the answer. Beatlemania was coined in Canada. <laughs> Beatlemania? You've heard of Beatlemania? <laughs> I sadly have not. Oh, my gosh. It was basically when the Beatles were blowing up and they were everyone everywhere, everyone called it Beatlemania because everyone was obsessed with the Beatles. Okay. So you learned something today. Okay. Mandy, uh, Canada eats what more than any other country in the world? What delicious, desserty kind of food do they eat more than any other? Oh, country I was in the gonna world? say the French fries with the gravy and the cheese curd dish. Oh, that's what I was gonna. Well, they it's do. A sweet they have thing. to. Yeah, it's sweet. Oh, that's poutine. Yeah, Putin. Putin. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not even try to say any words that we aren't sure. Yeah, on forget ever it again. Okay, I don't know. I don't know of a sweet thing that I associate with can. Oh, pancakes. Waffles? No, think Tim Hortons. Do you know Tim Hortons? Donuts. (laughs) Yes, donuts. Good job. They eat over a billion donuts a year. Honestly, I have. Is that more than the U.S.? Okay, let's not do. Let's not do math. Let's not do pronunciations. Like, let's let's stick to the script here. I don't know the answer. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Two more questions. 
What type of pizza was invented in Canada? Kind of pizza? Mm-hmm. Like toppings, that sort of thing. Combination. People get real hot over it. I don't know. Pineapple pizza. Oh, that was a Canadian thing? I guess so. Oh. Well, it has Canadian bacon. Oh, you know what? I love when we put things together. And by that, I mean you. Like, all of a sudden, I'm like, that makes the most sense to me. It totally okay. does. Okay, Perfect. but I, for the record, I love Canadian bacon, pineapple I pizza. do pepperoni and pineapple. I don't do the Canadian. But see, why do they call it Hawaiian oh. pizza then? That makes no sense. See, like, I don't know. Don't I, try I'm, to track this further. <laughs> We're not trying. going to get an answer. Because I was like, wait a minute. I feel like it's already named after a place. And then it took me a minute to be like, it's not called Canadian pizza. That's called a Hawaiian pizza. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they're just like, it's, there's pineapples in Hawaii. Let's do, let's call it, I don't know. I'm going to start let's calling not it Canadian this. pizza. <laughs> Mandy, here's something I want you to overthink. This is my last question. Okay. If I asked you, what is the Sour Toe Cocktail Club? What would you say? The Sour Toe Cocktail Club? Yes. I have no idea. Guys, I have no idea if this is actually true. There's supposedly over 100,000 members. It was established back in 1973. Okay. If you're ever in Dawson City in the Yukon, you can get a drink that has a real human toe in it. So the rules to become a member of this club are you can have any drink you want, but you have to consume it at any pace you want, but your mouth has to touch the toe when you're drinking it. Whose toe? Whose toe? Where did the toe come from? The toes have generally been donated by people who have suffered from frostbite. And if you swallow the toe, (laughs) there's a fine of $2,500. Which wouldn't the fine just be like you swallow the toe? Like... Like You're going through enough. I'm not going to charge you money. Ew. Why, yeah, though? Apparently, like, it's why like though? the only place you can drink it is this place in Dawson City. I don't know. That's disgusting. Somebody's it's a done no it. for me. 100,000 people have done it. This no, is so upsetting. It's a no for me. If this isn't true, just know that I actually don't care. So don't even bother to tell me. If I just want to know, though, true. like for future reference, if I were in a situation where I was frostbitten – and I was going to lose a toe or two. Do they pay me for it? Like <laughs> this, Only frostbitten this... toes? Is that your new thing? Well, if I ha- if I lose a toe at all, do I get to – Yeah. Do I get um, money? Do they pay – are they like looking to purchase toes? Maybe <laughs> only if – are you trying to give away toes? Are we doing that bad over here? Um, I think – well, maybe if some – maybe that's who gets the fines. Like if you swallow my toe, I get $2,500. Because otherwise I want it back. (laughs) I'm scared to know. There are worse things that could be done with toes. This is pretty awful, but I'm sure there's worse things. So I guess we should be happy about this. Yeah. It's like a rite of passage. I've never heard of that before. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I hate it. It, That's like even worse than like just drinking a shot of tequila with a worm in it or whatever. I will eat all the worms. Do not get a foot No, because have you ever actually seen the worm that's in the tequila bottle? It's huge and disgusting. Really? You You wouldn't eat that. You wouldn't eat that. Did you eat the I, cricket covered in chocolate or did I eat that? Uh, we both eat? ate some weird things. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, this conversation has gone way off the rails. It's derailed. <laughs> okay. So before we go, I did want to remind you guys again of the fundraiser that we're doing. The notes will all be in show notes. You can do that very easily. It's just a click. No big deal. And then also to say that uh, the fall line has a new season out. So if you were subscribed to them, I think they changed RSS feeds. So some people aren't getting those updates. So season 15, Unsolved South, they're one of our favorites. The fall line. 
All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye.